Hi, everybody. I'm happy to be with you. Gary, I just want to say officially, I'm proud of you. <laughs> and I consider myself your teacher by osmosis. I was here in 1999, and I haven't been back since. It's hard to get the reinvitation here. They're tough. Um, but anyway, I've really been struck by being back that um, the place has retained everything that was wonderful about it before, but it's also grown in terrific ways. And the writers are now more integrated um, with, the, with the visual artists. It's something I feel immediately when I'm here. And Anyway, it's a very special place, and I'm really glad to be, be here with you feels almost like a Quaker space, doesn't it? Like, maybe we should all hold hands and fall back in each other's arms. Um, anyway, I'm going to read some poems to you, and then um, I proposed um, spending a little time as a Q &A, with a Q&A if you're game, if you have a question, because I'd love to talk about poetry with you if you have anything you want to ask. I know there are a lot of people here who are artists and not poets, and that's interesting to me, and I have some thoughts about that, so... If you're game for any questions and answers after the reading, I'd love to talk about it for a little while afterwards. I'm going to begin with a poem from my father called Special Orders. My father was a businessman. He sold boxes. Um, and special orders, he, he likes special orders rather than standard orders because special orders, you've got more creativity in your design of your boxes and you got paid more. Um, and for me, it also has a kind of uh, a religious feeling. Special orders. Give me back my father. Walking the halls of Wertheimer Box and Paper Company, with sawdust clinging to his shoes. Give me back his tape measure and his keys, his drafting pencil and his order forms. Give me his daydreams on lined paper. I don't understand this uncontainable grief. Whatever you had that never fit, whatever else you needed, believe me, my father, who wanted your business, would squat down at your side and sketch you a container for it. Cotton candy. We walked on the bridge over the Chicago River for what turned out to be the last time, and I ate cotton candy, that sugary air, that sweet blue light spun out of nothingness. It was just a moment, really, nothing more. But I remember marveling at the sturdy cables of the bridge that held us up and threading my fingers through the long and slender fingers of my grandfather, an old man from the old world who long ago disappeared into the nether regions. And I remember that eight-year-old boy who had tasted the sweetness of air, which still clings to my mouth and disappears when I breathe. This is called Branch Library. I'm trying in this poem to get back to the feeling I had when I first started writing poetry, going back and forth between the stacks where I was reading and the tables where I was writing. Branch Library. I wish I could find that skinny, long-beaked boy 
who birched in the branches of the old branch library. He spent the Sabbath flying between the wobbly stacks and the flimsy wooden tables on the second floor, pecking at nuts, nesting in broken spines, scratching notes under his own corner patch of sky. I'd give anything to find that birdie boy again, bursting out into the dusky blue afternoon with a satchel of scrawls and scribbles, radiating heat, singing with joy. This is a one-sentence sonnet. It's about, it's called My First Theology Lesson. And it's a, my grandfather used to take me to a bookstore on the north side, and this poem tells, the north side of Chicago, and this poem tells about something that happened there. My First Theology Lesson. Rumpled and furious, my grandfather's friend stood up in a bookstore on the north side and lamented the lost Jews of Poland and declared that he felt sorry for God, who had so many problems with justice, and had become disillusioned and sad, since he wanted to reveal himself to us, but couldn't find anyone truly worthy. It was always the wrong time or place in our deranged and barbaric century, and so withdrew into his own radiance, and left us a limited mind and body to contemplate the ghostly absence ourselves alone in a divine wilderness. Self-portrait. I lived between my heart and my head like a married couple who can't get along. I lived between my left arm, which is swift and sinister, and my right, which is righteous. I lived between a laugh and a scowl and voted against myself, a two-party system. My left leg dawdled or danced along, my right cleaved to the straight and narrow. My left shoulder was like a stripper on vacation. My right stood upright as a Roman soldier. Let's just say that my left side was the organ donor and leave my private parts alone. But as for my eyes, which are two shades of brown. Well, Dionysus, meet Apollo. Look at Eve raising her left eyebrow while Adam puts his right foot down. No one expected to survive, but divorce seemed out of the question. I suppose my left hand and my right hand will be clasped over my chest in the coffin, and I'll be reconciled at last. I'll be whole again. This is about Edward Hopper. It's called Edward Hopper in the House by the Railroad, 1925. It's about a particular, that famous Edward Hopper painting of, that has just an enormous house with a pair of railroad tracks running, running in front of it, Edward Hopper's view of America. Um, there's a story I like about, um, it's kind of an awful story, about um, Joe Hopper where she was home and. I think it was Lloyd Goodrich went to see her and Edward Hopper wasn't there and she just saw a blank canvas. She pointed to a blank canvas and she said, you see that canvas? He's been staring at it all summer. 
Edward Hopper in the House by the Railroad, 1925. Out here in the exact middle of the day, this strange gawky house has the expression of someone being stared at, someone holding his breath underwater, hushed and expectant. This house is ashamed of itself, ashamed of its fantastic mansard rooftop and its pseudo-Gothic porch, ashamed of its shoulders and large, awkward hands. But the man behind the easel is relentless. He is as brutal as sunlight and believes the house must have done something horrible to the people who once lived here because now it is so desperately empty. It must have done something to the sky because the sky too is utterly vacant and devoid of meaning. There are no trees or shrubs anywhere. The house must have done something against the earth. All that is present is a single pair of tracks straightening into the distance. No trains pass. Now the stranger returns to this place daily until the house begins to suspect that the man too is desolate, desolate and even ashamed. Soon the house starts to stare frankly at the man and somehow the empty white canvas slowly takes on the expression of someone who is unnerved, someone holding his breath underwater. And then one day the man simply disappears. He is, a laughed at, he is a last afternoon shadow moving across the tracks, making its way through the vast, darkening fields. This man will paint other abandoned mansions and faded cafeteria windows and poorly lettered storefronts on the edges of small towns. Always they will have the same expression, the utterly naked look of someone being stared at, someone American and gawky, someone who is about to be left alone again and can no longer stand it. And this also takes its title from an Edward Hopper painting, Early Sunday Morning. I used to mock my father and his chums for getting up early on Sunday morning and drinking coffee at a local spot but now I'm one of those chumps. No one cares about my old humiliations, but they go on dragging through my sleep like a string of empty tin cans rattling behind an abandoned car. It's like this. Just when you think you've forgotten that red-haired girl who left you stranded in a parking lot 40 years ago, you wake up early enough to see her disappearing around the corner of your dream on someone else's motorcycle, roaring onto the highway at sunrise. And so now I'm sitting in a dimly lit cafe full of early morning risers, where the windows are covered with soot and the coffee is warm and bitter. This is called the Chardin Exhibition, and it's for a wonderful fiction writer and a friend of mine named William Maxwell. Um, I hope you know So Long, See Tomorrow. It's a great American novel. If you don't, um, right after you get my book of poems, you should get William <laughs> Maxwell's novel, So Long, See Tomorrow. Um, when, uh, when Bill was dying in New York, he was very eager 
for me to go see this Chardonnay exhibition, which was, which was on in New York. And it was astonishing to me that someone dying could be thinking about anything else, really, and certainly about a friend seeing an art exhibition seemed to me remarkable, and so I rushed over and then went to talk to him about it. This is the poem I wrote, the Chardin exhibition for William Maxwell. While I was studying the copper cistern and the silver goblet, a soup tureen with a cat stalking a partridge in here, you were gulping down the morning light and moving from the bedstand to the bureau, from the shuttered window to the open door. While I was taking my time over a pristine jar of apricots and a basket of wild strawberries, a pyramid leaning toward a faceted glass, you were sitting at a low breakfast table, eating a soft-boiled egg, just one, from a tiny, hesitant, glittering spoon. While I was absorbed in a duck hanging by one leg and a hare with a powder flask and a game bag, which you wanted me to see, you were lying on the living room couch for a nap, one of your last, next to a white porcelain vase with two carnations. I wish I could have stood there with you in front of Chardin's last self-portrait, exclaiming over his turban with a bow and the red splash of his pastel crayon, a new medium which he used, dearest, to defy death on a sheet of blue paper. I lived in, uh, in Houston for 17 years, and when I lived there, I lived across the street from the Manillo Museum, which I'm sure many of you know, a spectacular museum and a perfect place for minimalist art, which they were they had terrific exhibitions of. This is called The Minimalist Museum. I'm driving past our house on Sol Ross, across the street from The Minimalist Museum. I'm looking up at the second story window where I gaze down at the curators carrying their leather satchels to work and the school children gathering on the front lawn. I spent my 40s at that window stirring milk into my coffee and brooding about the past, listening to Satie's experiments and Cage's dicey music wafting over the temple of modernism. I chanced a decade at that window, impervious to the precarious moment, the broken moonlight flooding over the neighborhood trees, my wife's moody insomnia, my son's fitful sleep, and sacrificing another five years, another ten years, to the minor triumphs, the major failures. Green Couch. That was the year I lived without fiction and slept surrounded by books on the unconscious. I woke every morning to a sturdy brown oak. That was the year I left behind my marriage of 28 years, my faded philosophy books, and the green couch I had inherited from my grandmother. After she died, I drove it across the country 
and carried up three flights of crooked stairs to a tiny apartment in West Philadelphia and stored it in my in-law's basement in Bethesda and left it to molder in our garage in Detroit. My friend Dennis rescued it for his living room and moved it to a second floor study in Houston and a fifth floor apartment in the Upper West Side where we now be carted away to the dump. All my difficult reading took place on that couch, which was turning back into the color of nature, while I grappled with ethics and the law, the reasons for reason, being and nothingness, existential dread and the death of God. I'm still angry at him for no longer existing. That was the year when I finally mourned for my two dead fathers, my soul marriage, and the electric green couch of my past. Darlings, I remember everything. But now I try to speak the language of the unconscious and study earth for secrets. I go back and forth to work. I walk in the botanical gardens on weekends and take a narrow green path to the clearing. is called The Partial History of My Stupidity. I got the idea from a poem by the Polish poet Czesław Miłosz. He has a poem called Account, where he says, the history of my stupidity would fill many volumes. And you get to be a certain age, you understand what he's talking about. You can't actually write the whole thing, so I just wrote a little partial history. So it's sort of like volume three, chapter five. Partial history of my stupidity. Traffic was heavy coming off the bridge, and I took the road to the right, the wrong one, and got stuck in the car for hours. Most nights I rushed out into the evening without paying attention to the trees, whose names I didn't know, or the birds, which flew heedlessly on. I couldn't relinquish my desires or accept them, and so I strolled along, like a tiger that wanted to spring, but was still afraid of the wildness within. The iron bar seemed invisible to others, but I carried a cage around inside me. I cared too much what other people thought and made remarks I shouldn't have made. I was silent when I should have spoken. Forgive me, philosophers. I read the Stoics, but never understood them. I felt that I was living the wrong life, spiritually speaking, while halfway around the world, thousands of people were being slaughtered, some of them by my countrymen. So I walked on, distracted, lost in thought, and forgot to attend to those who suffered far away, nearby. Forgive me, faith, for never having any. I did not believe in God, who eluded me. read you a couple of new poems. This is called Two Poetry. Someone always sneezes when I read that poem. <laughs> Don't desert me just because I stayed up last night watching The Lost Weekend. 
I know I've spent too much time praising your naked body to strangers and gossiping about lovers you betrayed. I've stalked you in foreign cities and followed your far-flung movements, pretending I could describe you. Forgive me for getting jacked on coffee and obsessing over your features year after jittery year. I'm sorry for handing you a line and typing you on a screen, but don't let me suffer in silence. Does anyone still invoke the muse, string a wooden lyre for Apollo, or try to saggle up Pegasus? Winged horse, heavenly god or goddess, indifferent entity, secret code, stored magic, pleasance and half-wonder, hell, I've loved you my entire life without even knowing what you are or how. Please help me to find you. Troubadour song. I woke this winter morning to the smell of the sea and hummed a song for nothing, how nothing came to me. I dreamed I mounted a horse along an empty beach where we galloped far away till I was out of reach. We trotted past the lighthouse, abandoned on the dunes, and paused by a small stable that was now in ruins. I woke this winter morning to the smell of the sea and made a song for nothing, how nothing came to me. We rode to the starkest edge of nowhere by the sea. The horse was all that remained of what I'd longed to be. We had somewhere deep to rest and nothing left to see, and so the two of us walked into the cemetery. I woke this winter morning to the smell of the sea and sang a song for nothing, how nothing came to me. God's insomniacs. Those sleepless, blurry-eyed mystics, Saran called them God's insomniacs, mortified themselves in the arid and obscure night. They were spirituals, contemplatifs, voluptuous sufferers who could scarcely see the stars through the bitter light of their tears. One of the saints never slept more than two hours per night. She stood up to pray and nailed her hair to the wall. One of the saints dipped her forehead into a candle. Another tasted the flame. She said it would start raining roses after her death, though it never did. Their austerities enthralled you, one of the lonely agnostics lying awake at night and brooding about the hole in your chest. I was never able to pray. Wheel me down to the shore where the lighthouse was abandoned and the moon tolls in the rafters. Let me hear the wind paging through the trees and see the stars flaring out one by one like the forgotten faces of the dead. I was never able to pray, but let me inscribe my name in the book of waves and then stare into the dome of a sky that never ends and see my voice sail into the night.
the sweetness. The times my sad heart knew a little sweetness come back to me now. The coffee shop in Decatur, the Waffle House in Macon. The highway signs pointed to our happiness. The greasy spoons and gleaming truck stops were the stations of our pilgrimage. Remember the flock of Baptist women flying off the bus and gathering on the bridge over the river, singing with praise? Wasn't that us staggering past the riverboats, eating homemade fudge at the county fair, and devouring each other's body? They come back to me now, delicious love. The times my sad heart knew a little sweetness. A new theology. God couldn't bear their happiness when he heard them laughing together in the garden. He caught them kneeling down in the dirt, or worse, and letting pomegranate juice run down their faces. He found them breaking open a fig with fresh delight, as if something crucial had dawned upon them. I think the whole shebang, the serpent, the apple with knowledge of good and evil, was a setup, because God couldn't stand being alone with his own creation, while Adam and Eve celebrated as a man and a woman together in paradise, exactly like us, love, exactly like us. Green figs. I want to live like that little fig tree that sprouted up at the beach last spring and spread its leaves over the sandy rock. All summer, its stubborn green fruit, tiny flowers covered with a soft skin, ripened and grew in the bright salt spray. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was a fig tree, or so it is said, but this wild figure was a wanton stray. I need to live like that crooked tree, solitary, bittersweet, and utterly free, that knelt down in the hardest winds, but could not be blasted away. It kept its eye on the far horizon and brought honey out of the rock. And then just two more short poems. The Iliad and the Ops. <laughs> well, I mean, you're here. Last Saturday, then the doorbell rang suddenly like an alarm on Saturday morning. Who's there, I called out. The new exterminator. I was infested, it's true. But I never expected him to come so early without warning. I never expected him to be so young. And the widening sky. And then I hope we'll have a chance to talk about poetry a little bit with some questions and answers. The widening sky. I am so small walking on the beach at night under the widening sky. The wet sand quickens beneath my feet and the waves thunder against the shore. I am moving away from the boardwalk with its colorful streamers of people and the hotels with their blinking lights. The wind sighs for hundreds of miles. I am disappearing so far into the dark, I have vanished from sight. 
I am a tiny seashell that has secretly drifted ashore and carries the sound of the ocean surging through its body. I am so small now no one can see me. How can I be filled with such a vast love? <laughs>